0: Uh, yeah, what, what your goals are uh, for an artist uh, might be that lasting impact. And that's definitely something I do want to go for. I want people to read my comic books and not just read them in the next 20 or 30 years, but maybe uh, next century, 200 years, you never know. <laughs>
1: I'm your host, Aaron, and joining us today is special guest Philip Gerba. He's a New York City tour guide at the tallest building in North America by day and a talented comic book artist by night. Combining his deep knowledge of history and education at a clown conservatory and a passion for art, he's created a comic book genre completely unique to him. Without further ado, let's welcome Philip. Hello! Hello! <laughs> I want to know a little bit more about how you became so knowledgeable about New York City.
0: Yeah, well, I've been um, well living in New York City since uh, 2004. Uh, and I've been working as a, a tour guide since, uh, I think, 2009 was when I first started working. I started working at the uh, Radio City Music Hall. They have an excellent tour program there. So uh, if you can't see a show at Radio City Music Hall, take the tour. It's uh, really good. And if you do see a show, one little tidbit about Radio City Music Hall. Uh, if you see a show, if you don't see the show... Tour. Go use the restrooms because the restrooms, each one of the restrooms has a lobby that's decorated uh, by uh, some of the most talented artists of that era, which is 1930. Uh, too. So that that really ignited kind of my passion for learning more about history. And I've always liked history. Uh, But that's when I uh, did become a licensed tour guide. Uh, The summer after I started working for Radio City Music Hall, I did some walking tours there. And um, I also worked at, just talking about you earlier, I also worked at the Intrepid Sierra uh, Space Museum as a tour guide. And now I work at One World Observatory as a tour guide. So uh, a lot of it is talking about New York City, and really listening to people ask questions about New York City so I know, like, what might I be interested in in the future? Do you ever get stumped? Oh, yes, all the time. And every time I get stumped, every time I get stumped, I try to figure out what either the answer is, sometimes not just the answer, or what the best answer is, which uh, um, it it can be no one really knows, you know? (laughs) That's what I was like, like, where did did that story come from? Or one of the things, and one of my my friends uh, is Mike Michonne. He used to be the... the, uh, Manhattan Borough historian, and his his least favorite question was, where is the official abor- border of this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Because there really aren't any the, <laughs> for any of the neighborhoods. And and it's odd because neighborhoods are such an important part of New York City's culture. Like, what neighborhood are you in? What neighborhood are you from? That You can say you're from an, like uh, one neighborhood, and, and other people in the same building will say, no, no, I'm in this other neighborhood. And a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, who you identify and which one of the neighborhoods you identify with. Uh, so there is no real right answer to what neighborhood is this? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of cultural customs, like uh, I had a friend asking me the other day, why is this type of cuisine and this type of cuisine have similar dishes? It's like, well, they
0: both taste good. To they both people. taste good. Yeah, yeah. They had the mm-hmm. ingredients
1: accessible. There you go. Culture pervades uh, geography. Mm-hmm. So. What I'm trying to understand a little bit more about your tour guide stuff is what question would you say just you get asked the most?
0: Uh, What question do I get asked the most? Well, really, it's it's where's the bathroom? Uh, (laughs) I bet you do. Yeah, it really is. Uh, But, you know, I get a lot of questions about uh, New York City. Uh, and a lot of questions about different buildings, especially now that I work in an observatory, you see a lot of buildings. And people come to New York City for skyscrapers. And the skyscraper that everybody wants to know most about is the AT&T Long Lines Building. This is a building uh, in lower Manhattan that doesn't have any windows. And that's like, why. why would you build a skyscraper without any windows, right? And, and the real reason is it wasn't a skyscraper built for people. It was a skyscraper built for machines, right? Uh, it was built by the AT&T uh, Long Lines Company to house all their telephone switching switch equipment back in the 1970s. Uh, now. That's all computers. If you think of how big a computer was in the 1970s versus today, you, you'll probably guess that, uh, yeah, they don't use all that space anymore. at and takes up maybe a quarter of that space, and they lease the rest out to, to other computers, mostly data storage. Uh, and computers don't care about the view. But what they do care about, two things they care a lot about is one is heat and one is humidity. Uh, And those two factors are a lot easier to control for if you don't have any windows. So it's a lot Mm. cheaper at the end of the month. But there's also another thing. If You think about the 1970s, one thing that they were very much worried about was the Soviet Union launching a bunch of nuclear weapons our way. And they did make that radiation proof. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: When I was at the observatory, I met you. Mm -hmm. But as I was walking around, I did see that building. And my friend was very confused. He was asking me, are there windows and now I feel bad because I was telling him, yeah, there's windows. They just blend in.
0: (laughs) No, no, there's no windows. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And another thing is that the the NSA does have an office in there too. That's one thing everybody has. And and part of it is they do have data storage there, but yeah, if you're going to tap a phone line, that's where you want (laughs) to go. I figured there are some, yeah. Mm -hmm. Defense
1: related. use Yeah. for that building.
0: It's communication. And if you want to know, uh, if you want to spy on people, tap their their phone lines, you know? So uh, that's not rocket science there. (laughs)
1: I mean, I think you've proven already that you're the expert on New York City (laughs) knowledge, but I have some concepts that I want a little help in understanding. So the New York City is built on a grid, Mm -hmm. but Greenwich Village
0: isn't. Yeah. Do you know why? I do. And it all has to do with uh, your friendly mosquitoes, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, the mosquitoes uh, spread yellow fever, right? So when we were a young country back in the, uh, the 18th century, so when we were like the capital of the United States of America, uh, we had yellow fever outbreaks. And they were in the summer. And they were, it, 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 some of them worse than the other, but they really, summer after summer, a lot of people were getting sick with yellow fever. Now, we didn't get the the mosquito connection. But what people definitely noticed is that if you lived in lower Manhattan, and lower Manhattan was the docks, right? And one thing mosquitoes love are standing pools of water. And when you think about like barrels, they always have standing pools of water on top. That's a great place to breed mosquitoes. Uh, But if you left in the summer, you left where the mosquitoes breed in the summer, and you go to places like Greenwich Village, or even further up uh, in Harlem, or uh, places in Brooklyn, you wouldn't get yellow fever. And Greenwich Village was really the ideal place, because you could still do stuff in New York City, but you could still be a little safe from uh, yellow fever. And they called these people yellow fever refugees wherever they went, right? Uh, But in Greenwich Village, you got this area built up with this kind of spaghetti-shaped, you know, street grid. Now, in 1811, we, we came up with the, the commissioner's plan, and you have three commissioners who create this grid plan that covers most of Manhattan. In other places, like Harlem, Harlem uh, had to conform to the grid there, right? But Greenwich Villages didn't, and that was mainly because that's where it, people who had the money and the means to leave during the summer months... Uh, set up, and they built big, and they built uh, buildings that were just kind of hard and difficult, and they had political clout, so they didn't really have to conform to that grid pattern. And that's why it's a little bit easier to get lost in Greenwich Village. And uh, one thing you, you do notice is they have the avenues plowed through there, is that didn't happen until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, so for a long time, you had cheaper rents there because people got lost more. So and that, And that's what actually ended up kind of attracting the the counterculture movements whether you're talking to the beatniks the hippies the punk rockers or um you, you know the gay movements uh the gay rights movement uh really started in Greenwich Village and the reason that's where uh you had the the people who were kind of on the fringes of society at the time was because the rents were cheaper <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and the rents were cheaper because you got lost more often
1: what i'm uh creating a joke in my head is that mosquitoes had you know caused a boom in greenwich village absolutely and now a different type of mosquito has caused the rents <laughs> in greenwich village to go up. oh yeah the bloodsuckers yeah <laughs> yeah the bloodsuckers <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah rents do and yeah that'll be uh an arm and a leg
0: oh yeah yeah it's very difficult to to get you know affordable rent anywhere in new york city yeah especially that neighborhood oh yeah absolutely and, and what well, part of the thing is that neighborhood is you have a lot of uh, historical landmarks now because okay you have Cafe Wa that launched the career of, you know, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. And they, and they have a lot of really great performing arts venues there. in, in addition to that, uh, La Mama Experimental Theater companies. when I actually performed that uh, back when I was younger. And when I was younger, I was a professional clown and juggler. And uh, at that time, I actually got, that was the only time I got hired as a tight wire walker. Mm-hmm.
1: Philip, you're here to be a sequential artist, a New York City expert, and now you're mm-hmm. telling me that you also know clown stuff. Oh yeah, that's what I went to school
0: for. I went to so I went to school in uh, for theater performance, right in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. I grew up in Arizona. And then I went to San Francisco, went to the Clown Conservatory in San Francisco, and I worked as a clown and juggler for most of my 20s and a little bit in my 30s. And uh, and then I kind of got sucked into the the tour guide industry because the way I always like to explain it, I got paid a lot more as a professional juggler per hour, but I get paid a lot more per year as a, a tour guide, because there's always tour guide work, and, and getting clown work, it's like, ah, and juggling work, you audition, you, you audition, you audition, you audition, you might do an a eight-month tour or a, a year-long tour, but then you're back to the ground and audition, and, and being a tour guide is just more steady, so that's why I kind of left some of that performing arts world. Mm-hmm.
1: When I hear clown, I, I think myself and other people always think it's someone with, like, a big red nose and the white face paint, but correct me, clown... Mm, is actually much more broad. It's all Absolutely. about character work. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. And uh, uh, I did have a big red nose. but oh, I didn't you're do one the, of those. I didn't do the white face. I did an Auguste face, right? Uh, and that's something that, that kind of hails back to the the clowning tradition in, in France. You had the white face, which were, what, what are my white face doing? They're really making fun of the the, uh, the powdered noses uh, of the <laughs> upper class, the upper crust, yeah. And the, the Auguste are more... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, dressing in everyday clothes and that type of thing. Uh, and I did have white on my face, but in uh, my eyes, that's for visibility. Right. And the, and the reason you do that is so people can see you out in the back row. Right. Uh, so, uh, the reason clowns always wear makeup is because you always have big spaces, especially with the, uh, American circuses, three ring circuses, which aren't really around anymore, but Barnum and Bailey, right. Uh, you had the, the, the closest person to the clown, is sometimes over a hundred feet away. So you have to be able to communicate what your, uh, uh, it, with your face. And you can't do that without makeup, uh, not effectively. But you do have other clowning traditions, uh, theatrical clowning, and, and like Commedia dell'arte uh, is something I very much consider clowns, which is working with masks. Uh, but a lot of the, the work I did didn't rely on heavy makeup. It was uh, a lot, uh, I, I did uh, uh, elementary school shows a lot with uh, food play, which does, uh, which is more of a juggling show, but there's a, definitely a lot of clown elements. And I also uh, toured with Winnie the Pooh Live, and we had the Honey Helpers, which were kind of like the hundred acre woods version of the clowns which was really fun Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's so funny (laughs) the bit about white faces being uh a joke satirically of the elite i feel like in the modern day people are doing orange faces
0: oh yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely and it's always uh, it's always you know that's part of clowning. It's always good to take the, the, the higher ups down a little notch and making sure everybody knows, yeah, okay, they might have a, a, a place of power, a place of privilege, but they're still human and uh, I think some of the greatest clowns and even the greatest clowns of the, the I love the silent film era that's what Charlie Chaplin was all about. that's what his tramp character is always doing, always taking down the uh, the people in authority just down a notch and realize making sure everybody knows everybody's human, not just the not just the tramp.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to wish you a Happy Alligator in the Sewer
0: Day. I was wondering if you did that on purpose. I was wondering. Because it is February 9th. (laughs) It is February 9th, Alligator in Sewer Day. Uh, This is the day that we have the best um, evidence of an alligator in a sewer. Uh, and it happened in in, uh, in Spanish Harlem of our places and in february of all places at times right cuz this is winter right this is not where you uh, you would think an alligator would ha- be happy there and and the alligator probably was not happy it was in the sewer and one thing that was very common at that time was you could you could take the uh, Uh, The manhole covers off, and uh, you could dump the snow there. So it was a snowy day, and three kids were shoveling snow. They started shoveling down there. They saw a little alligator. It wasn't really that little of an alligator, but they saw an alligator down there. They took a a clothesline, lassoed it, it, pulled it up. And then it snapped at one of them, and they took their snow shovels and just, boom, beat it to death, which was uh, kind of an inglorious end for an alligator in the sewer. Have you seen an alligator in person before? Yes, I have. I, I, I uh, When I was a kid, believe it or not, I really wanted to be a herpetologist. So I loved alligators. And... Uh, I love I reptiles and amphibians. I grew up in Arizona where you have a lot of reptiles. One thing I used to do. No do, alligators. No alligators. No alligators. We had a lot of what we call horny toads, which are lizards, uh, for those of you who don't know. But I used to catch those all the time. And, uh, and my mom wouldn't let me keep them, uh, which was wise. And she always. Was like, <laughs> wise? My, was like, yeah, my mom is a biologist, too. Uh, and she always wanted, made sure like uh, these horny toads. They have a very uh, limited hunting pattern. She always said I had to put it right back where exactly where I got it, because even if I took it across the street, it might starve to death because it wouldn't know how to hunt in that particular area. Uh, but um, uh, but yeah, I I loved uh, the snakes too. A lot of snakes uh, in Arizona. This is all starting mm-hmm. to
1: make sense. So Philip has crafted multiple comics, but the one that is perhaps the most impressive is. The Animals of the Apple comic, which just I think you did it weekly, right? I did it weekly. Weekly, did it weekly. He would release new uh drawings and you know, it has the comic book bubbles, but it's all about the animals in New York City and the history behind it. And it's just it's it's pulling like the information in New York City with the talent of, you know, drawing and being able to just condense this information down in just a few sentences per page um there's so many reasons why i think it's an incredible comic and (laughs) encourage anyone listening to go and see the comic after listening but one thing that i think just really struck me as like amazing was you drew yourself with a beard but also morphed yourself into a whale's body
0: <laughs> or a fish. That was just or a fish. fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: I could tell that, like, what you were going for, I thought that was just so skillful. But then later on or earlier, you had mentioned this weird fact about the Trinity Church, where any whale that washes ashore, uh, the Trinity Church in our financial district can lay claim to that whale
0: absolutely why
1: do they want a whale and Uh, did
0: they ever actually get their hands on a whale you know it's funny because whales do occasionally wash up on shore uh in the area but they've seeded that right a long time ago Uh, so anytime one does they say, nope, the city can take care of it every, <laughs> a, any way they want. And the reason they'd want it is because whales were valuable back when uh, oh, when they the got the oil, their, yeah. yeah, the oil, and um, and also just the meat too. Uh, uh, the people did eat whale meat that washed up. I wouldn't, but uh, I would definitely get the oil. But the oil was a big part of it, and that was the main part of it. That was really the valuable part um, was the oil. You could render that down, or if it was a sperm whale, which didn't happen very often, they had the, the, these big packets of oil in the the big front part of their their head. Which was the, the what it call a spermaceti oil, which was like the, that was the good stuff, right? But any blubber, you could just uh, basically heat up and it would melt all the oil out, and that was uh, how they lit their houses.
1: I'm saddened that the whale population is just not what it is, not what it was, mm-hmm. and it may it probably will never recover.
0: Yeah, but Not in my lifetime. But yeah, it's, it's going to take a while because uh, one of the things about the whales is they have a long gestation period. But uh, speaking of someone who who does read a lot about animals and also reads a lot of history. One thing I've noticed is if you went back to it, one of my favorite Star Trek movies, right? Is Star Trek it was, I think, four. It's the one where they went back in time, yeah. right? And The the whole plot of that was the whales were extinct. And if you go back to 1980s, early 1980s, and you talk to a naturalist, most naturalists who study whales thought that by 2020 there would only be maybe one or two whale species alive. Not a single one of those species has gone extinct, and that's not an accident. It wasn't easy, but we did it. Uh, So I think there's a good reason to be optimistic in the future about the recovery of uh, populations because we are not. uh, we're, we're more aware of these species that have gone extinct, unfortunately, and we're more aware of the, the, the species that are endangered. We have an endangered species list, and we have a lot of very dedicated people making sure we don't have these animals go extinct. And I think uh, there is a great deal of reason to be optimistic about the future of species uh, like whales and uh, even other species that you don't think about that are uh, that are smaller, because that, uh, that, you always get the big charismatic, uh, charismatic Species going extinct and people are very worried, but there's smaller species too that uh, go extinct all the time and people don't pay attention to it. Uh, but people are starting to pay more attention to it now, and I think that's a a sign for being a little optimistic about the future.
1: I like a little bit of optimism. I feel like every Netflix documentary makes me feel like the world's <laughs> uh, ended yesterday. Yeah,
0: absolutely, and <laughs> uh, and that does sell. That does sell. You know that pessimistic. Uh, so no one's gonna sells. listen to yeah. this. Yeah, exactly. Not... Exactly. I'm too optimistic during it. Yeah. I'll try to be more pessimistic in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, I want to hear more about preservation in mm-hmm. New York City. Then, mm-hmm. is yeah. there any building or um, animal or culture item that you think we should be doing more for so that it doesn't disappear?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Because there's uh, one thing about New York City that I think is great is that it's it's always changing, so it's hard to keep track of things. Uh, but it is something that's always dynamic. And uh, part of that is it's it's hard to, uh, to uh, you know, know what's there, what's been there, right? So uh, things uh, are moving, and especially the culture is always moving in New York City. And I think that's a very positive thing uh, that uh, New York City is made up mostly of immigrants. Uh, and the culture is a very living and very dynamic culture. New York City always has been, and I hope it always will be. Uh, now, there's a lot of animals in New York City. That's one thing that uh, uh, I, I made animals in the apple to explore. Uh, and one thing that's interesting when it comes to the preservation of animals is, is that a lot of people have um, uh, been seeing more of these animals, right? So that's another thing. And, and what do we do and why are they there? One thing that's interesting is the coyotes that are in... There's- there's, coyotes? There's coyotes in uh, both Van Cortland Park. I've never seen the one in Van Cortland Park, but there's one it's in... I like
1: coyotes are everywhere in America, but are, I didn't realize they, they'd be this close to New York City.
0: They, they were in... And actually, even in Manhattan, I saw one in Fort Tryon Park, uh, and I was like, that's a, coyote. that's a coyote.
1: What street is that on?
0: Uh, that's on the... Was it 200 and... Okay, so it's... Uh, yeah, 207, it's up there. 7th Street, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's the uh, very northern tip of Manhattan. But it's still on the island. It had to cross a
1: bridge or something.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So, it had to cross the bridge. Uh, there is a bridge, the Broadway Bridge. It's really close to there, or the other one that that might have crossed is the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway, which I think is too busy for a coyote to cross even at night. Uh, but it could have, right? Uh, now, and that's what the interesting thing is because when you look at coyotes back early in the in our our city's history, they didn't have them here. Yeah, they they weren't this far north because you had wolves, right? So it's one of those things when you when you have one animal that's being preserved, sometimes another one. Um, or, or when you have one animal that's not there anymore, sometimes another one takes that niche, uh, which is interesting, which happens there. Uh, another thing that uh, is coming back that's being preserved, which I do like to talk and I did mention in my comic book, is oysters, because I love oysters. Um, if you're interested in oysters, it's actually really great. So oysters. we should preserve the oysters. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we, should the the oysters. we should preserve the oysters. That's the thing we should preserve? The big, biggest That's thing. your answer? I, I think so. I think so. And, and the thing is, they went extinct in New York city waters, right? Which used to be a big part of the economy in New York City. Uh, and, what the, and actually, it's, it's, I talk about cultures. Uh, one culture that was, uh, it, it was very strong in Staten Island was the free black culture, right? When, this was back when uh, New York State even still had slavery. There is a, uh, a colony of, of people who are freed slaves, mostly. Uh, and they they subsisted mostly on selling oysters uh, because, the because the, you know, all the prime real estate was taken by white people, right? And they, and, but the ground they had was sandy. They call it sandy ground. They had a lot of... Uh, the only thing they could really cultivate there was strawberries, and they did make some money from that. But really, they made it by, by applying the waters in the New York City area for oysters. And that was a big part of it. But oysters were actually a big part of New York City's diets, really, since well before New York City was a city. Uh, and the oysters... Uh, we're, were uh were killed basically because of the pollution, water pollution, and uh water pollution has gotten way better in New York. It's still not great, you know. It, it, and one thing I always like to say is I I would swim across the East East River right now, but I would not play in the mud. And the reason that mm-hmm. you got the heavy metals are just really hard to get out. But you also have a lot of sediment there, uh, that's suspended in the water, and some of that's uh, pretty nasty too. Because of that, the, the industrialization and the oysters help filter that out. Uh, so you still, so uh, we have a, a project here called the Billion Oyster Project, uh, which is very good at uh, at reseeding these oysters. Now oysters have a hard time getting seeded here, not just because of the quality of water; all that is part of it, and the mud, you know. Uh, but they also need uh, hard places to to attach to. So one thing they do, uh, the Billion Oysters Project, I should say, is they uh, take oyster shells from restaurants. And they clean them out, and they put them in little uh, baskets, and they put them out there so that the, the new oysters, the spat, as they call it. I love the fact they call it spat. It's always kind of a fun word, right? It's a the fun spat. word. Yeah, they, they, they can attach there, because they're, they're free-floating when they're spl- spats, but then they attach, and they grow into full-grown oysters. Wait, so they
1: take the oysters from the restaurants, mm-hmm. they take the shells. They take and... the
0: shells, not the oysters. You eat the oysters. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they take the shells,
1: they throw it out there, and that tricks the other oysters
0: into no it, it gives them a space to, to attach to because it's hard for them to grow if they only have mud is the thing so oh, they don't grow in they mud can attach as upon well other shells exactly, exactly. Oh, and, okay and it used to be that we had uh like reefs of oysters that were just thousands and that like the center of the oysters is like a thousand years old and in the uh, and and then the outer shells is the oysters that have been living on basically the carcasses of the the previous oysters gotcha mm-hmm
1: I want to hear more about your artistic side. Oh, absolutely. How did you get started in
0: drawing? Yeah, well, that came later in my life than uh, most people who are artists, I think, because this was when I was a professional juggler, and um, what had happened, I was touring with uh, Food Play, which uh, we do a lot of elementary schools, uh, and we teach kids uh, the value of proper nutrition through, of course, the magical educational power of juggling, and they still do it. They're still doing that, and they're still a great company that does that. Uh, now, one thing that I learned while I was doing that is if you do a, a public school show in Philadelphia, you have to do a, a public school show for all of the public schools in Philadelphia. And that was an eye-opener for a lot of reasons, but one reason is is the wide variety of maintenance that happens in these stages. And I, I, one of them was, uh, in one of the things, Philadelphia put a lot of money in their public education system in the, in the 20s, right? So you have a lot of schools that were approaching 100 years old. Uh, and some of them were very well maintained and very well conditioned, uh, but there was one that, that, that the stage that we were performing and wasn't great. So, long story short, as I fell through a stage. Uh, and oh no! <laughs> I know, and I, I hurt my,
1: my Can ankle. I wait? Can I guess what happens next?
0: Uh, oh, go, go ahead.
1: While you were recovering, you got into drawing.
0: It, not, not really. Oh, no, no, it, it was okay. no, it, it was close, but I, I I did flat. I couldn't work. So, uh, for, it wasn't for very long. It was for like a week I was out uh, with my foot up on a dip. But I'm like, okay, I'm a clown and I'm a juggler. I rely a lot on my body to, to, to what happens if I have a bigger injury and I can't work for more than a week? What if I can't work for a year? What if I, what if my career is over because of an injury? And one thing I always knew I wanted to do when I was younger was write, right? And it, when I was a kid, I, uh, or when I was a kid, when I was in my 20s, not even a kid, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be a performer for a while, but when I get to be uh, middle years, which is what I am now, I, I wanted to be a playwright. That's what was, I-, I was wanting to do. But it so happens, I was also reading a lot of web comics, and, I, uh, and it was really the, the digital medium that made me think, you know, instead of being a playwright why don't I do comics? And why don't I do digital-based comics? And, and I, I remember the, the comic that I was reading, did it, was uh, Rich Burlo's, uh Order of the Stick. I'm also a big uh, Dungeons and Dragons player, right? And Order of mm-hmm. the Stick is a Dungeons and Dragons webcomic. And it was really the way that, it, it, I can tell you the comic that, that got me to, to think about being a webcomic artist is uh, when Roy fell from the dragon, which uh, just disappeared. And all of a sudden, instead of a comic book page it was a scrolling affair and it was something that could change so quickly and when i first started doing my my web comics i really did more of that stuff where i'm like okay i want this to be a digital experience as opposed just to be a thing and i kind of went away from that uh for a few reasons when i started studying uh art because i didn't like Back then this was not terribly long ago I, I i was in my late 20s when this happened so uh it this was uh uh, you know, uh, it was, it was, so it was less than 20 years ago that I started learning how to draw uh, in any serious way. And I, I took some art classes as a theater major. You do a lot of design classes. So I did a little bit of that. But really, I didn't really think of becoming an artist until, uh, until then, until my late 20s, right? So, and most people who are, who are wanting to be a comic book artist or create comic books are in their teens or 20s when they say or even earlier than that some people you know yeah i always feel like there's some people who always knew what they wanted to I think do there's from some the, people like, coming
1: out of the womb and exactly, they're like i'm you know, gonna like draw this, the next superman
0: i know i know and this is something that um you know I, and I, I liked comics uh but I, I like a lot of things that i, I never thought a guy like video games do but i'm not going to write a video game or create a video game so there was that that paradigm shift and it was really that okay i should start writing it and then i i decided to do try to do a web comic my first web comic wasn't very successful and on a lot of what levels. what do you mean
1: not successful what's your benchmark
0: uh benchmark is um what is my benchmark well for one thing it wasn't really what i wanted and it kind of fizzled away and part of the reason it fizzled away is because i, I started working i started working too hard no i started working too hard as a, a tour guide because i mentioned I, I worked both at radio city musical and the intrepid sierra and space museum what i didn't mention i was doing that at the same time oh, so it was man. one of those things that okay i i just realized I just worked for the past sixty days without a single day off. No wonder I can't do my webcomics. But uh, that's the the problem with t- working two part time jobs is way harder than b- working one full time job and trying to do anything else.
1: Well, that didn't answer the question, though. It does give more context. Mm-hmm. It was unsuccessful because you because couldn't be it, consistent it with it because well, you be were consistent being overworked.
0: With it is a big part of it, and it kind of fizzled. Um, another part of it was uh, that I, uh, uh, I, I I like kind of didn't have. A, a branch to go there and a part of it is is I didn't have an ending and uh what I decided to do when I started doing my comics again because I, I did that and I also I was also doing another uh a comic book style comic which was Zyphon Balthrix uh and uh I uh Zyphon Balthrix was just like kind of a joke a day comic uh Egg Rogue with the Night Slayer was my first comic and it was I kind of had ways to it, for it to go, but I didn't have the full scope of how big of a project we want to do. So when I started doing my comics again, I decided made a conscious choice of making very short comics at first. Uh, so Animals in the Apple is a series of two-page stories. And I kept that, um, uh, that, that format, and that really helped. Right now, my comic I'm doing now, which is a, a weekly comic, uh, that is uh, called Epic Duels. And it is a four-page format. And I'm, now I'm building up. So I, am, I do have larger projects on the horizon. Uh, I have a, uh, uh, a comic that I'm writing right now is the Rough Draft, where I'm on, like, page 170 of page—I uh, was going to say 200, but the Rough Draft is going to be way more than 200 well, pages. How, wait, yeah. how are you able
1: to do four now when you're doing two? prior.
0: And four, uh, four pages uh, for a story, not for Well, a,
1: are you spending twice as long before uh, you do the release? No, releases? no, this is
0: still a weekly comic. It's more yeah. how, long, how long is the story? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I still produce the same amount of pages per week. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just, it's a month, uh, I do two stories a month with Animals of the Apple, whereas now with uh, Epic Duels, I'm doing uh, a a story a month, right? And I also have very different uh, constraints. So uh, Epic Duels, I did something that that actually ends up saving a little bit of time, is I'm I'm doing the same format for every comic. I have the page number one, page number two, page number three, and page number four. Each one of those has the same frames. And that was... uh, uh, I actually found that
1: the animals of the apple to be just so whimsical, is that the frames... We're very unique for each page that absolutely. I was looking at.
0: And that, that was what I was working on then. It, 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 so, so it's like a different skill that you were trying to like. Yeah, hone. a different way to think about how can I, I make a story. Because one thing I, I actually did do with Animals in the Apple was try to figure out how can I make the best format? How can I, how can I frame the best story with the panels I have? And uh, now uh, I got a good sense of that. So I made a framework that I liked and now with Epic Duels, how can I fill this one frame with compelling stories?
1: Ah, so it's much more narrative-driven oh, now.
0: Absolutely. And it's much more exploring the nuances of different genres for this one. And, and uh, for my Epic Duels, uh, I have uh, kind of four series I'm planning on, right? So I have the first one, which is Fantastical du- uh, Duels, which I'm really is focusing on the genre, right? So... Uh, I have like high fantasy. I have sword and sorcery done already. Uh, I do the time travel, which I love. And the one I'm doing right now is kind of like this homage to the, uh, the old uh, Buck Rogers and those sci-fi early sci-fi before we actually uh, had actual space travel (laughs) Yeah, and that type of uh, style. And then I'm going to go to some cyber, cyberpunk, steampunk in um... just everything. Yeah, everything, everything. Punk, punk. Exactly. Yeah. Punk, punk. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, but then after that, I'm going to do historical duels. So I'm going to do duels like, um, actually, I'm going to, my, my first one that I want is Cornelius May versus Baron von Richthofen, which is uh, kind of not really a duel, but I'm going to kind of try to make it fit in there because uh, if you don't know who, uh, uh, but, uh, Cornelius May, you probably don't know who is, but you might know who Baron von Richthofen is. He's, he's the Red Baron, right? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's going to be my first historical duel. And then... Uh, and, and part of this, uh, the, the, this duel series got was because I did uh, take a lot of fencing classes, uh, and I kind of got into the, the history of that. I read a couple of books about duels and why people duel. Uh, and then after that— Well, why do they duel? Oh, all sorts of reasons. Now, what, one of my, my favorite ones I'm going to be doing is uh, Tycho Broke against uh, his cousin. I forgot his name, but I looked it up. And the reason they were dueling is because they each thought they were the best, ma- best mathematicians. And I don't know if you know who Tycho Brahe is. Do you know who Tycho Brahe is? You're going to have to educate yeah, me. Yeah, he, he was uh, Jonas— Ke- Do you know who Jonas Kepler is? Yes. Okay, <laughs> he's, a, he's a, uh, basically the guy who figured out how the, uh, the planets orbit the sun. The reason he was able to do that is because Tycho Brahe had the best uh, observatory, and he, ha- he was a great mathematician, uh, and he, he, he was able to help out uh, Jonas Kepler. Uh, fun thing about Tycho Brahe is that the thing that most people know about him is he doesn't have a nose. His nose was cut off in a duel. <laughs> About who was the best math- mathematician, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but that's that's one of the reasons that people duel is because they have an argument that they can't settle with their words, right? Uh, and, and the odd thing is. He, he
1: thought he knows best. Exactly. He, Get it? Knows.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the nose knows. But he knows famous <laughs> for having a golden nose. Uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of reasons that, that seem you crazy. Are the only person I feel
1: like on planet earth who's doing comic books (laughs) about these historic figures. Mm -hmm. Your comic books are also extremely wise. Thank you. Um, For instance, like in one page you had said that anger heals slower than scrapes.
0: Oh yeah. 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 And that's another. Do you remember thing. writing that? I do remember that. And I remember that experience too. And this is another thing I, I, I've been doing in a shorter form. And, and uh, f- what my plans are I, I do uh, so I do this, this weekly comic. I don't do this for all year, I, I, do, uh, I do it until I have a comic book, which is uh, usually uh, uh, 20 uh, to 24 weeks, right? So it's about half a year. About half the year I'm going to be doing these. The other half I do shorter form comics. Uh, I did Squarely Quick for two. Uh, two summers. I'm definitely going to do something like that this summer. I'm still kind of thinking about what that's going to be. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of it is autobiographical experience, and it's like. Okay. Can you
1: explain the anger heals slower than scrapes? Yeah, it was. How did that like it, it, it revelation happened. occur, and how could, and then you were able to articulate it? Yeah. Like that. It,
0: well, it occurred because I was I was riding my bicycle, right? Uh, I was riding my bicycle. Uh, in a, a part of the, the West Side Highway that turns suddenly to the to the uh, uh, west, which uh, is where the sun sets, and it was right at sunset. Guy gets blinded. He slams into a sign. Because, was this another cyclist? Uh, I was a another car? cyclist. It was another okay. cyclist. Oh yeah, yeah. This is yeah. For those of you you, you who uh, who don't frequent the, the West Side Greenway, this is one of my favorite things about living in New York City. Is the bike path there uh, is a, a, an amazingly well protected bicycle path from. Uh, uh, from cars and he, he fell down. I, I, uh, most people's instincts were to say, are you all right? Are you okay? And then there was another person who just came down there swearing up the <laughs> a blue streak. And I, I just like looked at that person and they were so angry. And I'm like, how can this much anger happen uh, over someone who had an accident, which I mean, granted he probably should have been paying a little bit more attention or realize that it was around sunset. So he might not, uh, have the best visibility around this curve. But everybody's made that mistake. But they, but this person was so upset at a mistake someone made. And I had, uh, I had more sympathy for her than, than the person who actually had the scrapes because I figured, well, he's going to heal. I don't know how she's going to let go of that anger because it's a tough thing to let go of anger. And it was really just thinking about that moment. And when I went home that night, I wrote that comic about exactly that and exactly my wow. thoughts there. yeah.
1: You're freshly able to just make that connection. Mm-hmm. To me, that was like the climax of the whole piece. So, did you draw it all, and then you were like looking for like some banger to put at the very end, or you just started it from the very beginning, just with that? Oh no, I that I,
0: knowledge. No, for me, I I just uh, I drew them like squarely quick. I do squarely quick drawings, right? So I, or fairly quick drawings. It's a pun, right? Um, so I just drew uh, and I tried to keep it, each panel down to twenty minutes a day, uh, and you set a timer I, I didn't I don't set a timer, yeah, I probably <laughs> should because yeah, some of them, and it's clear, I think some of them are like, okay, that one he definitely used twenty minutes only, yeah. and that one, yeah, he took a little bit more time um but um uh, but a part of that was generating ideas quickly and sometimes your your best ideas come very quickly and uh, and other times you have to draw them out and and this was all about getting those ideas out that I wanted to get out that I don't have time to do a full comic i don't have time to develop yet, but I kind of want to experiment on what might be my future uh projects which which ones are more successful, which ones do people seem to like better uh and uh and that type of thing and i I think having this kind of quick generation is um uh, is something that's useful for most artists. Yeah.
1: So we did discuss success a little earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Before it was not being consistent
0: <laughs> yeah. means
1: you won't be successful. But then now you're trying to decide what you work on next and what will be the most successful. So... Is there now a new benchmark? Assuming you could be consistent, right, what is successful? Yeah. How do you, that, you then decide?
0: That, well, eventually, because well, right now I'm a full-time tour guide and, uh, and I haven't really actually made any money selling comics, right? So eventually, I think successful is going to be I'm going to be a full-time comic book creator and then a part-time tour guide. And that's one of those things. Eventually, I don't want to have to be a tour guide. I probably will because there are th- I, uh, I'll probably go back to being a walking tour guide. Uh, For a couple of reasons, but one is I do like to interact with people and uh, being an artist, particularly a comic book artist, is uh, something that that you have to have a lot of time alone to do. So uh, I I feel like if I, uh, it would be very easy for me to just lock myself into a room and not, you know. Uh, experience the world, which is one of the the best things about being a tour guide. So I think for success for me it is is actually going to be financial success in the future, uh, which I, I I still don't have yet with my my comic books. But uh, but I'm uh, I, I'm kind of in this place where I'm comfortable with the amount of money I'm making as a tour guide so much so that I can um, really focus on making my art the way I want to make my art with less of a Uh, an emphasis on how I'm going to sell it. Because you're
1: the audience and other people that are watching and reading, but you don't have to compromise your artistic style. Mm -hmm. You could produce it in the vision that you had because you're not depending upon it financially. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that get famous and their whole direction and what they wanted to accomplish with their projects changes because... It's what the consumer wants. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, and and that's one of those things that's always uh, always like a balance, right? Because li- li- like, is that the difference between art and entertainment? Is entertainers always go for what's going to sell, whereas artists go for something uh, a little bit more uh, personal, a little bit more transformative. You got to put that in a comic <laughs> book. I've <laughs> never thought that. of it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's one of those things that s- some of the best artists, some of the most influential artists, were not successful financially, like Vincent Van Gogh or Emily D- Dickinson. Emily Dickinson, yeah. You know, she never sold a poem. Yeah. Vincent van Gogh sold one painting. Or, uh, uh, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, what, what your goals are for an artist uh, might be that lasting impact. And that's definitely something I do want to go for. I want people to read my comic books and not just read them in the next 20 or 30 years, but maybe uh, next century, 200 years. You never know.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> what do you think's holding you back from that? becoming a dream.
0: Um well a couple of things one is uh, trying to and part of it is I I started this Animals of the Apple a very poor timing uh as far as uh COVID yeah COVID yeah, yeah. as far <laughs> as COVID goes I I started publishing Animals of the Apple online in January of 2020. And the the idea was I was going to start doing conventions uh, the next year. I couldn't because and it's hard to do conventions. How does a
1: convention work? You go, you get a booth, you get a booth, you lay out exactly. the pages, and, and people might talk to you, exactly, buy it, they follow exactly. you, you network. And, it, yeah. and
0: in New York spe- City specifically, have the smaller conventions, and they're uh, they've been harder to get into now because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the first convention cycle, uh, they honored it like everybody. Paid for their booth for the 2020 convention no one could do a 2020 convention so in 2021 and 20 or 2022 depending on the convention they, they were all booked up already you know there was no space for for any new spaces uh and then there's a lot of people who like myself did uh well actually because I, I started this before the pandemic a lot of people started the, uh, their uh Uh, comics during the pandemic so there's a uh, there's a lot more uh independently created comic books out there uh the only convention i did is actually a tucson comic-con which was really fun and i did learn a lot so when i do another convention it'll be better and i have applied for the uh uh the brooklyn comic-con this year but i haven't gotten any word for whether or not i'm going to be able to be accepted there and and sell comics there but uh if i I do i would like to every time
1: i hear comic-con i think of everything but comics.
0: I know, and that's the, the thing about the Comic-Con in New York City. I've never even tried to apply for the, the big Comic-Con in New York City because it's it, it, like the comics they sell there are the big names, the, uh, uh, and mostly superhero stuff. And my, my com- I don't do superhero comics, and I probably never will. Uh, and, and they're the DC and Marvels, and they're the big corporations, and the White Horse and the, you know, uh, Top Cow. I used Top Cow show around, I don't know. But uh, they, do a lot, uh, they do a lot of the big name, big corporate uh, money uh, comics, but they do a lot of other stuff, right? They do a lot of uh uh, you know, video games, a lot of movies, uh and a lot of them are based on comics, of course. But uh, uh it's not really a place for uh uh my type of work whereas other Comic Cons like the Brooklyn Comic Con, like Mocha, uh the Brooklyn uh, or Comic Soccer, Brooklyn Cab was a great one, but they uh they haven't done I, I should look them up again, but they uh had a hard time because uh of their venue was just like completely okay, no no nothing here other it was Pratt by the way. Uh, but they like nothing here that's not I student feel like it's related because of, because of difficult to break out of as a comic book yeah. artist.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think? I'm thinking about it like if it was the 1950s where everything's nice and simple and yeah, but where like you just go to a comic book store and you're like, "Here's a hundred copies. What do you say?"
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that that uh, in some ways it's a lot easier to get into it because it, the printing costs are so cheap, so much cheaper. I, uh, uh, I can do it. And also publishing comics is very cheap. My, I don't even know how much I pay on the websites, but it's like yearly, it's like 50 bucks. And I have like basically as many websites as I want. (laughs) And I, I, it's a little bit more for the, uh, uh, the, the domains, but I can actually at least get it online. I can at least get it in front of a public, uh, for a very low bar as far as cash. Whereas before, when you only had offset printings, you couldn't, just print a hundred comic books. You had to print a thousand minimum because it was a lot. It was very labor intensive. Yeah, to, you can
1: self publish.
0: Exactly. So it was very much the 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 bar for self publish publishing has gotten a lot lower with uh, with digital printing, right? And I can yeah. And also I, I you can go to uh, to indie planet and you can buy animals the apple volume one. I don't have an inventory. You, you, you just go to that website. You can click on that. I think I saw it. it was. Yeah. You were selling it for 4 dollars 5 I was it for 4, four and a half dollars 5 Why? That's so cheap. <laughs> it is so cheap. And the reason is because right now what I'm trying to do is get a bigger audience, uh, and that's a, a big part of what I want to do. Uh, eventually, I'm going to s- sell for—because for, uh, for I still make a little profit on there. Uh, but one of the reasons why I did it so cheap in, in Indie Plant is because they do have pretty high shipping costs. Uh, mm, so my okay. like but the target is what i want to have uh right now is to have people get a comic in their hand for about five dollars uh and they can have that comic in their hand and, and that was very different from when i first started this i'm like I, I, like is print still something i wanted to do when i first started thinking about sequential art i didn't and um uh i didn't think about that i thought about okay advertisers and now we have patreon too and, and uh and things like that which which I, I don't know do you have a patreon account I don't. I don't either, but it's one of those things that's like on my to-do list. I need to... to uh, well, but, not at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I know. And that's the thing. There's so many different avenues to it. And that, right now, I'm in a very lucky spot, right? Because I have a job that I don't hate. I really do love being a tour guide. Uh, and I love talking to people. I love getting my history geek on. Uh, but, uh, but I also... It's not really where I want to be. I want to be creating art that I want to create, Not not the... The tourist-driven uh, storytelling that I do, but when it comes down to what I've always been, what I was always think of myself as as a storyteller, uh, and I just want to have a a broad of uh, audiences I can possibly have for my stories.
1: Speaking of audience, and this is going to be a tough question to ask, but how do you stay consistent and humble during this whole process of creating? Art. Yes, it's a comic book, but this is truly art just interweaving history and cartoons and writing into something that just has never manifested before physically. Because I feel like if I was making, what I'm going to say, masterpieces and not getting recognition for it for long enough, I feel like eventually I would fatigue and start mm-hmm. questioning, like, if it's worth my time anymore.
0: Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a good thing. how do you stay consistent when you don't have a lot of good feedback? And, uh, that is, a, a, that's always a challenge. And consistency has always been a big challenge for me. Uh, and having no outside stimulus, uh, to, 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 to be kind of a feedback loop is hard. Uh, but, I have been able to do it for a lot of reasons. Some is I do have some very supportive friends who are, uh, uh, who are constantly saying, okay, good work with that comic. I'm really liking this storyline. Uh, and having friends who are encouraging is very helpful uh, to, to stay consistent, to stay focused. Uh, another thing that is, is that I can see myself improving is in, in my work. It's like, okay, this is actually turning out the way I want it to now, or closer to the way I want it to. Uh, it's, I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, uh, but uh, I think that's the nature of art. You never get exactly what's in your mind, but sometimes you get something that's, uh, that's going to push you in a different direction you didn't expect, which is also exciting, at least for me. Uh, and, uh, and, and he also says, how do I stay humble? <laughs> how do I stay humble? i not humble. No, uh, no, but one thing- You don't think you're I, humble? No, no, I, uh, I think I'm very arrogant. No, but one thing that does help is uh, my work with history right because when you're looking at all of the great success and failure stories, often with the same person, it's like it's so quick to go from the, the height of being at the top of your career to like never being hired for anything again. A great example of that is, uh, Chrysler. Oh, you're it, saying
1: like you can go from very high to you very you can low go from order. successful to unsuccessful pretty like, fast
0: oh, yeah you see that like and one of my favorite uh, architects is william van allen William van allen did the chrysler building yeah and he did it for mr chrysler he didn't do it for the chrysler corporation He did it for mr chrysler and now he didn't get a contract before that right so he then said okay you gotta pay me and he sued chrysler for it because uh, and he got the money for his work but chrysler blackballed him and says no one should hire him again and he never really got a big commission like that again so it's like that is perfect. This is like what so many people think of when they think of the height of Art Deco is the Chrysler Building. And he, re- he, I, not that he di- died destitute, but he never got a big commission like that again because of uh, just the, the the roll of the dice and the way the contracts laid out afterwards and how he had to to, to sue to pull the teeth out of that. that I'm not sure Chrysler. how to interpret that. So, is yeah. there? Do you
1: take solace in the fact that people can just make it and then not make it? just disappear God,
0: disappear well that that's interesting because uh, it, like how capricious uh, capir- what's the word i'm capricious? capricious capricious life can be that's the word i was looking for i taught capricious you something life. i know that's right you <laughs> taught me how to pronounce that word that is one of those that's one of those words i read a lot and i'm like i know how to pronounce that like no i don't uh, yeah capricious how capricious the world can be so and it can be that, okay, all of a sudden, you can be doing, you know, work uh, for, for years and years without any success, any financial or uh, popularity, success, and the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're selling a million comic books, right? And, uh, it, and it's hard to uh, not be humble when you really look at how much of how many people's career is dictated by just luck, it's pure, simple luck, you know? You can be uh, very successful, very talented, and those help, but, it, 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 you know, that fate can be cruel, you know, and fate can also be very smiling upon people, too, and it's, uh, I don't think people realize how much luck has involved with so many big events, and, and of course, talent helps, connections help, your position helps, but sometimes that's luck, too, like, especially when you're talking about talent, yeah, yeah, that, that, especially when you talk talking about talent, Talented in itself is lucky. Like if you're born talented, that means you're lucky, right? Yeah. So, uh, but but luck has so much to do with uh, with success and failure. In when you look at history, you can realize, like, man, this if this just turned on the dime, things would be very different. We wouldn't know who this person would was.
1: I, I never considered the fact that being born talented is luck.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: I always considered it like. After coming out of the womb, but that is so true. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Like
1: but you your don't particular get to biology is lucky. that at all? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things is is like your 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 conditions at birth have nothing to do with anything other than luck, really. When it comes down to it, it's just like that little you know sperm at that little egg, and you have that. Well, then everyone's out. the luckiest, absolutely, in the world
1: because. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know the number uh, of sperm, but. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of sperm. There's more a lot. The odds are that, not exactly. on there's your side. Exactly. There's a lot side, more sperm that never found an egg, yeah. And
0: a lot more eggs that never found a sperm. And yeah, 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 just humanity in itself is just a lucky circumstance. And then having civilization and being in this moment in time is, I think, uh, a lucky place to be. And being a human is a lucky thing to be, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, Earth is the only
0: planet that can support life. Yeah, so far as we know. And it might be the only one in the entire universe or the galaxy, or it might not. We don't know. Uh, and that's another thing is, like, I always think about, uh, yeah, and I, I do like science fiction a lot. My, one of my long-term projects is a science fiction comic book. And I, I always try to think, well, what is humanity going to be like in the next thousand years? Are we going to be a prim- predominantly planetary species, for one species for one thing? Or are we going to be living in space habitats? And uh, are we going to be a multi-planet? I, I, I assume we're going to be at least a multi-planet species in a thousand years. But are we going to have the bulk of people even living on planets? Is, is being a planetary person a rare thing in a thousand years?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if I throw my hat in the ring and try to answer that question, uh, there's a lot more resources on solid planets. So, you know, you could be in some space station in space, you could insulate it, but in terms of getting matter that has to come from a physical planet or another station that has enough resources to... Not just self-sustain, but actually create extra to send to other ones.
0: Yeah, but when you think about it, when you look at the mass in our, in our solar system, most of it isn't planetary. It's mostly things like asteroids uh, or moons. Too. That's another thing, what, how much will, uh, we live on moons. Mm-hmm. So if people uh, in Another thing that is difficult right now, which might not be difficult, and this is what's going to change it, is we're in the bottom of a very deep gravity well. So it's going to be a lot easier to get around in space if you don't have a deep gravity well you have to keep digging out of. Every time you want to have resources leave your planet, yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: So that's so that's my argument. Historian, I, <laughs> scientist, <laughs> clown, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, cartoonist, everything, <laughs> amazing. Do you think aliens exist? Uh,
0: you know what? That's a good question, and it's it, like we don't have any evidence of them. Uh, so uh, it kind of depends on what you mean, aliens. Do I think there is an advanced alien civilization more advanced than us? That's uh, within easy reach? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think we would have evidence of that now. Now, are there alien, you know, uh, animals out there or something similar to animals out there that uh, have, uh, you know, stone tool technology, even city-state technology of the Bronze Age? We would have no evidence of that. Uh, so, uh, I, 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 and it's hard to know because we have such a little, little set of data. And we're getting more and more when we're studying more and more exoplanets. And we do have a lot of planets. So my guess is there's probably a lot of life out there, but it's hard to tell with, because right now, as for all of the life in the universe, as far as the sample size, we have one. So a lot is really just wild speculation until we get a better data set. Uh, But my guess, based on the data we do have, is that there's nobody out there who's more advanced than we are that's close enough to, to have, because space is huge. So there might be someone. that's pretty big. Exactly. You know, 100 light years away that's big an, as big as us or bigger than us, but we won't know that for 100 years when their light gets us. And, uh, and as far as we can tell, uh, like one of the things that I think is the oddest thing about when we think about science fiction, we always just assume we're going to get past the light barrier as easily as we get back to the sound barrier. And uh, if we can't travel faster than the speed of light, things are going to be slow. And uh, one thing I think we did, what and it's odd. Like, I had cr- I'm
1: actually familiar with that. Yeah, is that if we can't go fast enough and the metric is light speed, uh, we are just kind of doomed to stay within um, a small enough region within our own galaxy that a human life wouldn't actually be able to uh, explore another
0: region. And I think that's, see, that's a formula that people use a lot. But they're thinking, okay, that's because we can't travel faster than the speed of life. But the real question is that other half of the formula, human life, that's not going to be true. And I I think people are going to be living long enough that they can go to uh, uh, the next uh, solar system over many solar systems over. I think that's an interesting idea that instead mm, of going faster, get humans to live longer. Absolutely. And really, there's no scientific reason we can't live a thousand years. But there are a lot of th- scientific reasons we can't go faster than the speed of life. So it looks like it's a—right now it looks like it's an easier problem to solve. How do we get people to live a thousand years versus how do we go faster than the speed I of life? I feel like— Yeah. Not that they're either easy problems, mind you. Can you get a
1: brain to live in a robot.
0: No, I'm not that, even talking that, about that. To me, that I'm seems within be. my
1: lifetime yeah. achievable.
0: And I think we, we underestimate how—, uh, how Uh, how close we are to to solving some of the problems with just aging. So we're just not going to age as much. And part of that is going to be nanotechnology. I think we're going to, you know, figure out how to get the telomeres a little longer, but that's not going to do it. we're going to... There's going to be a lot of changes. Uh, it might be my name. We might be. Uh, we uh, in a hundred years, we might still be around. If we are, we should do another interview in a hundred years.
1: <laughs> all right. Same time, same place. Same time, same place. See you in an, a century. On yeah. alligator in sewer day in, a, in one century. So, Philip, I am going to give you the floor to share all your um, socials or websites, oh, yeah. places people can. Reach out, uh, and see your work, but also any last words that you want to share with the audience, please. The floor is yours.
0: Oh, sure. Well, first off, my uh, website is philipgerba. dot uh, com. You can uh, see both animals, the apple, all the comics I have there, and uh, uh, the comic book I'm working on right now, which is the Epic Duel series. Uh, you can actually buy. Uh, you can get, there are links there for my social media to Philip Gerba at Instagram and uh, Philip Gerba at mastodon.art. Uh, eh, oh, no, it was Philip philipgreber at art.social that's on Mastodon, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, and the, all the links are on the website there. Uh, And, uh, yeah, just uh, if you're a creator, keep creating. Uh, And uh, remember, you know, we have ups and downs in our life. Just enjoy the ups. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. I feel like a creator, so I'm going to try to internalize that, and I'll try to enjoy just the ups. It was a pleasure having you on. You taught me so much in such a short amount of time. And um, I'm really glad I met you.
0: Me too. Me too.